Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, another vaccination is making headlines. Not quite there yet, but it's 94% effective. Should there be another lockdown before a vaccine is available by next year? Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says the federal government needs to take a harder stance on China and Huawei. And history was made in space over the weekend. We give you the details coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, I'm Eileen. No, not yet. You're early, honey. Hang on. Now you go. How are you doing? Hey, you know the Christmas tree looks great. Thank you. Good work over the weekend, baby. Thank you. You too. All right. You rock it. Go. Hi, I'm Eileen, Scott's wife. The kids are all tuckered out from putting up Christmas decorations over the weekend. At least that's their excuse. Ha! So here I am. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. And here's Scott Thompson. Good work, honey. There you go. <laughs> oh, I love it. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers get back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Uh, it's uh, Christmas time at the Thompsons. Yes, I'm staring at a tree. Not a real one, a fake one, but, you know, what the heck. Good news again today. Uh, Moderna announced that uh, it is in the final stages of its vaccine. Uh, obviously, still premature, still not there yet, but the good news is very optimistic, saying that uh, it's uh, up to 94.5% effective, which is uh, great. I mean, last week we heard of the Pfizer. It was, uh, I believe, 90% effective. So good news on the horizon. If we can just make it through the second wave and keep up with the protocols, let's bring in Eric Arts, uh, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, Schulich School of Medicine and uh, Dentistry at Western University and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Yep, I'm doing fine. Very happy after today's news. So obviously we're starting to hear more and more optimistic news uh, every day or each day moving forward. And, and I guess we knew we'd eventually get here. But what does this latest information mean to you now that we have two uh, that are two different companies that are reporting positive results in the final stages? Uh, it's it's great news. I, we we can be very happy and I'm very confident about uh, the data that they've presented. And I think we can see probably vaccination starting uh, probably at the beginning of the new year. So um, I'm hoping that the Canadian government knows uh, the supply chain and how to get the vaccine out. But uh, I'm pretty confident that they've been thinking about this for a while. And front of the line, obviously, those that are most uh, in need, most uh, susceptible to this and frontline workers. Uh, Any idea how long just that is going to take? Well, it depends on how quickly we can get doses out and who needs to administer the vaccine. So right now, uh, we're probably looking at healthcare professionals administering the vaccine in clinics and possibly even hospitals, but we still don't know exactly. And there is a little bit of a difficulty in terms of keeping what they call a cold chain. So being able to transport the vaccine cold and store it cold uh, before administration. But I think these are all logistical problems that um, the government has been working on, both the federal and provincial government. So I think um, 
although it's all news and uh, great, uh, happy news for us, um, in the field, we, we kind of had an idea that these were going to be effective. So uh, we're pleased and we just look forward to finding the fastest way to distribute. You were talking about the temperatures uh, in order to store these these drugs. Uh, obviously, the Pfizer one had to be kept at, at a very cold temperature. Is it the same with the second one? Um, they both, for long-term storage, they, they both will be required to be kept at what we call like minus 80 degrees Celsius. And, um, and so there will be, like in laboratories like my own, um, we have lots of these minus 80 freezers. And so the companies will be well equipped with those too. It's now it's getting it out to distribution sites where it, it all depending on how quickly uh, they can immunize people with the vaccine doses they have. Um, it may not require that long uh, that needs to be stored at that temperature, or they could ship it out every day and then being able to administer it rapidly. So um, the cold chain issue is a problem. Uh, but it, but it's not insurmountable. So I think we'll be able to manage that. Uh, and why the two doses? And what would be the length of time between each one? Would we know that yet? Uh, usually it's about a month. And um, it gets a little complicated. It has to do with your immune system. So you normally want to prime, what we call prime your immune system, and say, hey, this is uh, bad for you and your immune system recognizes it. And so then uh, that, that kind of primes it so that the immune system knows that this is a potential virus we may encounter. And then uh, you boost it and that strengthens the response uh, to that virus. Normally we would do prime boosts in other vaccines too, but for example, with flu, we're, we're constantly exposed to it. So we always have this priming that is available to us. And the vaccines that we receive for flu is kind of like a boost. So that's why we haven't encountered this type of virus before. So we have to get our immune system ready for it. Um, do we know uh, how long it will last? And if not, when would that information be available? Is that just one of those things time will tell? Yeah, unfortunately, it is something that time will tell. I, I always caution people, though, because there's a lot of data out there where, you know, people are worried because uh, when you get infected, um, people always talk about how your antibodies don't last very long. And is this going to be the same thing with a vaccine? But it, it's it's very, very different. Vaccines are are there to really provide the best response possible and a virus that infects you is, is, is trying to escape from your immune response. So even though it induces the same type of immune response, it doesn't do so as well as a vaccine does. So a vaccine can last 10, 15 years potentially, but there are vaccines where we need to be constantly re-immunized or re-vaccinated. But those are usually in viruses that are are sort of changing all the time. And coronavirus, in particular SARS-CoV-2, it doesn't change a lot. So mm. we're, we're pretty confident it'll last for quite a while. Many were concerned that when this we first discovered COVID-19 that it would mutate into other things. That not a fear as much anymore, obviously. 
No, I mean, it does mutate, but it, it does so at a very, very slow pace. And, and its mutations, I would say, are less important um, from a virus standpoint than other viruses. I work on HIV, and that virus evolves and mutates very rapidly in the human population. Um, with coronavirus, it, it's very stable for the most part. I mean, it's problematic because it jumped into the population the human population, and it can jump again. So we, you know, we hear about the culling of of uh, minks and um, also uh, the potential of bats and such. So, um, you know, there's always a possibility that uh, we'll have new introductions of coronaviruses. But this is great news because I think the same platform we use for vaccines today uh, can be used for a whole bunch of different diseases. And that's what I'm most excited about is this vaccine technology that was developed for this virus has the possibility of being used for a whole bunch of diseases in the future. Uh, with obviously not going too far into the weeds, I remember reading that, that this is different. Many, many people thought that they would actually be administered COVID as part of the vaccine, but this is a completely different technology for making vaccines this time out. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Yes, and it's something we've never used before. But, you know, whenever you say that, people will get worried because, yeah. you know, it may be that we will see different side effects and things, uh, adverse events that we hadn't seen before. But one of the greatest bits of data yesterday that wasn't really discussed as much is that the clinical trials monitoring boards, the ones that really monitor safety of this vaccine, this one came back with a real clean bill of health. And this vaccine... And based on the nature of this vaccine, I think it's going to be one of those vaccines that have very few adverse events. And that's great news because it's a very, very simple approach, which people don't may not understand. This is about as easy as it gets in terms of administering a vaccine. That's good news when we when we hear that this might be the new normal with these sorts of viruses and such and many wondering what the next one will be. But you feel confident about that. Yeah, and I always uh, espouse that we can't take the f- our foot off the gas anymore. We we did that with the first SARS epidemic. We did that with another epidemic called MERS, um, and you know we get we we do this with Ebola, and there's just too many viruses like Zika, et cetera, that have jumped into the human population. Um, and as soon as it goes away, we forget and we ignore it. We've got to focus on these things now and be prepared for the next one and we can be there's lots of things we can do in preparation for the next jump into the human population and this type of technology is just fantastic this vaccine approach for dealing with these things in the future eric arts has been with us department of microbiology and immunology schulich school of medicine and dentistry at western university eric thank you for the time be well Uh, Thank you, Scott. All right. Let's bring in Dr. Jonathan uh, Kimmelman, Ph.D., Division of Ethics and Policy School of Population and Global Health, McGill University, and is with us now. Jonathan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks. Your thoughts on where we are with this uh, announcement of yet another vaccine and your concerns moving forward in regard to getting this into people's arms and the administration? Well, uh, first, I think this is really encouraging news. I, of course, 
want to see all the data. It's still an interim analysis, and that means that we're going to continue to accrue data about the safety and efficacy of this vaccine. But the fact that we such, see such a positive signal of safety for not one but two vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 is really, really encouraging. So uh, it's almost unprecedented. It is unprecedented to develop a vaccine that is uh, this promising in such a short time span. So, yeah, I think I'm really, really encouraged. Um, to your second question of what needs to happen to get this into people, well, we still need to complete these clinical trials. We still need to see the final data uh, to make sure that there are uh, no major safety issues with two months of follow-up. Uh, we also, it would be useful to know something about how long the protection actually lasts. Are we talking about six months? Are we talking about a year? Are we talking about more? Uh, there are still some questions to be answered about whether or not this cuts the rate of transmission. So it may be that people are asymptomatic but are still nevertheless capable of transmitting the virus. So, um, you know, there are a number of questions that we uh, will need to resolve. But all in all, I think this is really encouraging. Um, and then finally, you know, in terms of getting this into people, uh, obviously we need to have the infrastructure, you know, the manufacture and the infrastructure in place to distribute a vaccine should these promising results be borne out uh, once the study is complete. How do you think the public will react to this? Do you think they'll jump on board and, and form the line to the right? Or do you think there's going to be those that, that question this as there always is with this sort of thing? It's really, really hard to have a sense of how the public's going to respond. It's a bit of alchemy trying to guess, you know, where the public is going to be. It's important to recognize that there is a lot of diversity of public perspectives and viewpoints. Uh, there will no doubt be skeptics in the public who don't want to pursue a vaccine. Uh, probably those are not going to represent the majority of uh, our population. Um, there will be others who are, uh, you know, who, who have confidence in a regulatory system and who are willing to take a vaccine that has this uh, amount of promise. I mean, I think a lot of people are fatigued by the various lockdowns and the surges and whatnot. And, uh, you know, to me, it's, you know, reasonable to expect that a large, you know, proportion of our public will be willing, uh, if not eager, to get a vaccine so that we can resume a, a normal life. It won't be everyone, but uh, we don't need necessarily everyone. We just need a very, very substantial fraction of the population to be using an effective vaccine. All right. Thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, uh, Kimmelman, sorry. Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman has been with us. Uh, PhD, Division of Ethics and Policy School of Population and Global Health, McGill University. Jonathan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Be well. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi there. Yep. So your thoughts on uh, the second announcement of another vaccine coming out, obviously still in uh, clinical trials and such and still a ways away, but uh, certainly positive news we're hearing. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're hearing 
uh, you know, Moderna announcing that the vaccine is effective. It's, it's great, great news for everybody involved and in, in hoping to see a brighter future ahead of this COVID-19. But we also have to be cautiously optimistic here, Scott. We have to be careful that to read the evidence carefully about what, what is included in that, who was included in those uh, early initiatives sort of uh, in putting forward the effectiveness study. But it all leads to one conclusion, which is that we're moving at a very fast speed in getting a vaccine that's viable and that is safe for use for everybody involved. Now, the, the question comes in, when will that be available for us? That's going to be a question for Health Canada because our regulatory process is a bit more rigorous than other countries. So it will be important to figure out from them when we will see a distribution or idea of when that will be distributed across Canada. We had an interesting uh, comment from a caller who was asking if all of these companies are sharing info. What happens once we start to come up with these and the the process is refined? Eventually, we're going to have one that's better than the other. How do these companies... Uh, interact with each other? I mean, normally drugs and such uh, patents, it's a big deal. What's the difference here? Well, they're probably sharing very high level information. They're not sharing the little details of how they produce the vaccine or specific details about their actual data inputs and outputs. That's very confidential, as you pointed out. And this is goes to patent laws and they're trying to protect their own brand. At the end of the day, pharma is a business, correct? So they're trying to make sure that they, they sustain a business and they stay competitive in the market. So they're not going to be sharing very intimate details about how they produce the vaccine, but they're probably sharing general feedback that we all have access to, which is like today's Moderna's announcement about the effectiveness and who, they, uh, who they've sampled to be included in the clinical trials. So what are your concerns moving forward as, uh, you know, as now these announcements are slowly coming out? Uh, obviously, it's going to be another six months or so before it's in everyone's arms. But, but what are your concerns moving forward as far as administering this vaccine? Well, when we look at uh, Pfizer, I won't speak on Moderna because the announcement is very recent. And we still don't know the intricacy of that announcement. But Pfizer's announcement last week about the effectiveness of their or the respective vaccine alarmed some of us because when we look at the evidence, we saw that it wasn't based on a large sample, that it was very preliminary, that there were some issues about announcing it too early. So it's a fine. I want the public to know one thing when it comes to policy development around those vaccines. Companies like Pfizer will very quickly make those kind of announcements, partly to assure the public that they're on the right track to produce a good vaccine, a safe one, but also partly because of own business competitiveness. And sure. so we have to read between the lines and be careful about making a generalized announcement to say that this is the way forward. We actually have to wait till all the data is back in and our, our own regulatory bodies making that assessment, whether it's the FDA in the, in the USA or whether here in Canada, it's Health Canada, looking at that evidence assuring that it is safe for our public. For me specifically, I would be looking for that. I won't care as much about what Pfizer or Moderna have to say. I will care a lot more about my own country-based regulatory body when it evaluates uh, this uh, evidence. So this is all great news, and it is encouraging for for those of us who are fatigued with all of this and and see a long winter ahead of us. But what happens now? What happens between today and when this actually gets administered? Well, what happens right now is that we're really concerned about the escalating numbers of COVID-19. And I think that's where the government and everybody involved right now is looking at a possible shutdown any minute uh, because the numbers are and the projections of 6,000 December a day case number and us being close to some parts of Europe. Uh, it's very alarming, Scott. So the question now comes to before this vaccine become, gets introduced into our markets and we are able to have access to it, 
do we need to look at a much more aggressive stand about how do we handle this this pandemic? Because the reality is, and it's very unfortunate, it doesn't please me to say this, is that we are looking that we're heading towards a full lockdown. And the question becomes is that how much of a government involvement uh, is going to be sort of included in this shutdown? Are we going to see people, the government stepping up and issuing fines for people that violate the rules that put into place? Or are we going to go into more of a society-based approach where we just put the, the emphasis on people to follow the rules with no government sort of enforcement? That's a question that we need to be asking ourselves right now. So as as you see things right now, especially with the whole greater Toronto-Hamilton area pretty much under, well, are under a, a red level, uh, does this is this going to require what they call a circuit breaker approach, which is a lockdown? Yeah, I think that we are looking into a possible lockdown, and the numbers don't look very promising. They're not decreasing. If anything, they're, we're seeing a trend in an increase in the numbers. Projections are telling us that numbers are going to increase. But it's also not just an Ontario thing, Scott. It's a countrywide thing. So there is narrative right now about a federal or a national strategy that involves all provinces of Canada uh, to make sure that we're all aligned and getting ahead of this. And I think we're drawing similarities from other countries that have been successful in doing that. Taiwan, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand. There are models that we can look at where a national strategy served really, really well. Is that something that can be done in a country as large as Canada? It's not as much the size that is an issue as it is our political structure. Healthcare delivery is at a provincial level, not at a federal level. And so that really comes down to whether the provinces were willing to cooperate, which they've seen that we've seen the past that they have been uh, with the federal government to allow a federal response to COVID-19. And I, and I'd be very surprised to hear anybody else say otherwise that this is where the discussion is now. Like we're seeing British Columbia going a much stronger stand on their COVID-19, Alberta, and now Ontario, where all uh, all the provinces of Canada are looking into like more uh, strict guidelines. Why can we not have a national way of looking at this? Uh, and I go back to my earlier point that I mentioned in your re- uh, in your show last week, which is that what we really need to be looking at is you know shutting down everything to get ahead of the, uh, to get a very low case number, and then looking at international travel specifically and saying that we need to be start mandating any travels from outside into a 14 day quarantine, monitored and and sort of enforced by the government. Uh, we can look at Australia as an example, but that's only one way that we can get to a very low numbers in our country now. You bring up a valid point because, uh, you know, I think many are, are, are saying, you know, gee whiz, I personally, meaning anecdotally, I, you know, I'm abiding by these rules. I'm masking. I'm keeping my distance. I'm not seeing any of my friends. Yet there's still planes flying around and people landing in and out of the country. And, I mean, we have this sort of false sense of security. The U.S. border is closed by land, but you can still fly in and out. So, um, you know, is it is it accurate? Is it is it strong enough to say to, to, to Canadians to lock it down? when there's still people flying in and out of the country. Well, the evidence tells us that, you know, one way to actually deal with that is, uh, like I said with the Australian example, Scott, is the government mandating anybody who lands internationally into our borders, internationally, because domestically it's a bit different. Anybody who's coming, whether it's in the U.S. or international, to present with a negative PCR test once they board a plane, and once they land into our Canadian borders, they get tested at the airport, which is currently happening at many of our airports. But then to have the government mandate that those individuals go into uh, specific sites that the government chooses. In other countries, they've been hotels. So the government has been able to uh, secure hotels where they quarantine any international travel for 14 days before they get sort of 
for the lack of better words, released back into our communities. And the question now is, can Canada do this? Given our political structures and the authorities that we have, is Canada willing to consider that as an option? And that will require twofold. First, a full lockdown of our own community to get into a very low case number, because we still have high community case numbers. And second, to ensure the continuity of a low case numbers within our communities, let's also limit the number that's coming up from abroad by enforcing those mandated quarantine in specific sites. Uh, right now, as I mentioned, uh, Southern Ontario, pretty much from Oshawa to, to Hamilton in a red zone. Uh, that being said, we know it's closed and it, it's pretty much essential travel here and there, but schools are still open and such. Uh, will a full, with the, the lockdown that you're discussing, would you include schools in that? Would it just be a case of shutting down the hospitality industries that do exist? What, what would, what would, what would be next in the next lockdown considering, you know, they're a little bit different than they were in the first wave? Or do we go back to what we did in the first wave? It depends who you speak to, Scott, because if you speak to parents, they'll tell you that they want their children back in school. Uh, and yeah. so it, it, the government's in a very tough position because they have two opposing forces. There's public health who's saying, close things down, shut down things. This is escalating out of control. We have capacity issues at hospitals that we're worried about, and we're just worried about the numbers being too high for us to handle. But then you also have competing interests, which are the businesses, small businesses, just businesses in general who are telling, please don't close things down. It's going to suffer. The economy is going to suffer. You have parents who are saying, we want our children to go to school. So it's going to come down to a question of, of what do you prioritize first? Is it population health or the interests of different stakeholders? I am not providing a value judgment on those interests. I'm being very careful in my words to say that each one of them are valid, but they're each different concerns and it's up to the decision makers who are making the decisions on this to, to evaluate all those concerns and actually think carefully about what's at stake here if you ask me from a health policy perspective i would say that population health status is of critical importance and should be number one priority and we should be looking at ways to support small businesses with small loans paid sick leave for parents who need to stay at home because they're worried about exposure we need to be looking at distance learning for the foreseeable future in our schools because we can't. I mean, it's a very mixed messaging, Scott, when you schools are open, but we're asking for shutdown. I'm not sure that's yeah. resonating well with the public. If, you, if, if I'm telling you right now, Scott, you cannot leave your home, but you're still sending your child to school. You're going for a walk around your home and you're seeing that school playgrounds are full, full of students and kids. It's mixed messaging. And I don't think that's working well with the public. Wow. Um, when we let's assume that the vaccination studies and such testing uh, continue to be successful, say, for example, let's pick February, that this is first released for those that are most vulnerable and, and in frontline situations. Once that starts to happen, say February, let's pick that date. How long before things start to return to a semi-normal or whatever that new normal is. How long before we're safe? Well, we're hearing uh, reports that pharmaceutical companies have deals with specific countries who will get the vaccine first. Canada is arguing that we're one of those countries. So the idea here is once those pharmaceutical companies prove to have effective, ready-for-distribution vaccines, Canada will get a hold of them. They will, we will run our own testing and a regulatory process in Canada. And then it will be, a, a, depending on the time frame, when that will happen, then we'll see a distribution plan for specific, we've already know from the government it's going to be high risk individuals first. So elderly, 
uh, immunocompromised individuals who will get this vaccine before all of us get it. I don't suspect that we will see any of that until probably next summer. Uh, and that's at best case scenario. I will be very surprised. It's not impossible, but I'll be very surprised if we hear about any of this development until probably June of next year. Uh, any advice for those that are looking at the winter ahead and, you know, obviously some positivity here with the vaccine information, but still feel, I mean, we're hearing about anti-max, uh, anti-mask uh, demonstrations heading uh, in so, uh, going on in southwestern Ontario. Um, any advice for those as we try to process all of this and, and head into a Canadian winter? I'll give the advice I give to my loved ones and myself every day, which is I will do whatever I can do in my, my own capacity. Because I think that people are feeling overwhelmed and fatigued by too much advice. And so here's, I'll keep it very simple. Do your part. Uh, and your part is that wear a face mask at all times. And their evidence has clearly showed that it's effective. Social distance when you can. Uh, try to minimize contact with individuals outside of your home as much as possible. And please practice safe hand hygiene. The advice hasn't changed. We need to be consistent with the advice. Uh, and the evidence proves it. And so this is not an advice not based on evidence. It is based on very rigorous evidence that those interventions do work. So if we each do our part, I think we can look at a much brighter future ahead. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, always, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, You may have heard, and uh, obviously, as we've covered on this show, the Prime Minister uh, now getting quite vocal against uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the influence they are having over uh, Canadians, uh, Chinese Canadians here in this country who are being harassed by uh, Chinese Communist Party members who are coming in from out of state and making sure that they toe the line here. Uh, as well as interfering in, in uh, many situations. Uh, obviously, the Huawei CFO being held right now in Vancouver. Lots of discussion still, as we are like one of the last people uh, to from the Five Eyes to, uh, to make a decision on Huawei and whether it will, uh, in fact, be allowed to uh, operate in Canada as we jump into the 5G uh, world. Here is Mercedes Stevenson talking to Aaron O'Toole and what his stance or how he feels Canada's stance should be on China. Are you concerned about the effect that this could have on the two Michaels? No. In fact, we've been advocating for the two Michaels from the days that they were t- taken when Trudeau called their cases regular consular cases, misled Canadians with respect to why they were arrested by China. They've been in prison for over 700 days, uh, Mercedes. Over a year ago, in less period of time, the Liberals promised a decision on Huawei before the last election. That was a year ago. All of our allies have made the decision on Huawei and the 5G. All experts say that Canada cannot be an outlier. We can't put risks to our future digital economy by allowing Huawei, a state-owned Chinese enterprise, to help construct it. The Trudeau government never makes tough decisions. They kick them down the road. So what we've said is we know they know what the answer is. In the next 30 days, they should be honest with Canadians, honest with their allies, and uh, highlight the risks and and the intimidation that hundreds of Canadians and families are feeling from Chinese communist uh, influence operations in in Canada. All right, that was Aaron O'Toole, Conservative leader, on with uh, Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block on Global TV. Let's bring in Michael Chong, Conservative Shadow Minister on Foreign Affairs and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. 
So, uh, why the stance now on China? It seems the Prime Minister, and I guess I shouldn't be asking you this question, it seems now he's, he, he seems to be turning up the heat. The, the Huawei 5G deal, that's been something that's been floating around for an awfully long time. W- what's with the love affair with the, the Chinese Communist Party that we can't stand up and make a decision on this? Is it because of the two Michaels? I think it's uh, a reflection of the, gro- the government's broader foreign policy incoherence and inconsistency. Uh, this is not an isolated incident, this dithering on 5G, on Huawei's involvement in building out Canada's 5G network. This is part, part of a broader pattern. I'll give you a couple examples. You know, it was only a year ago that you had the Prime Minister indicating that he would not interfere with the judicial proceedings concerning Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive in Vancouver. And during the same week, we had former Ambassador McCallum say that uh, yeah. Canada should work out a deal, should interfere. You know, just a, about a month ago, we had the foreign minister say that Canada was no longer pursuing free trade talks with China. And on the same day, you have a Canadian ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, saying to a crowd, including the Chinese ambassador, that Canada should do more in China, that we should be expanding our relationships with China. So it's just this indecision on Huawei is just another one in a long list of uh, examples of the government's complete inconsistency and incoherence on the China policy. Uh, we all remember 10, 20 years ago, it was all about China, China, China. That was the golden goose. Everybody wants a piece of China. Everybody's got to get in. We're going to hug China back into demo- or into democracy. Uh, we're going to show them the way. Hong Kong is not going to go to China. It's going to stay the way it is. And, of course, all of that is, is just a nightmare now. So why does the federal government still have this love affair with a country that just continually bullies uh, uh, Canada and and with the election of Joe Biden in the United States, do you see that bringing the allies together in some form to try to keep this under control? Well, I think the answer to that question is that there are a lot of senior liberals who have business interests in China, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Um, there, and that's business that that's been that's business that has been cultivated over the last twenty or thirty years, and now we're trapped, are we not? Because it, it, it's and as you mentioned, and and not many people talk about this, but there are a lot of uh, people who have a lot of money invested in China who 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 don't want the government to upset them. Yeah, but we shouldn't confuse uh, somebody's private business interests with the national interest of this country. At the end of the day. Huawei presents a security threat to Canada's telecommunications network. Under Chinese law, Huawei must support, assist, and cooperate with China's intelligence activities. That alone makes it a security threat. And the government needs to stand up for Canada's national interest, make a decision on this, and ban Huawei from our 5G network. Look, this is a government that often talks about multilateralism, talks about acting multilaterally with our allies, but when given a chance to do so, fails to act. And this is a good case in point. Four of our five eyes intelligence partners, that being the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, have either banned Huawei or put significant restrictions on them. Canada is an outlier. It is failing to act in concert with our allies on this file, and it's it's long past time for the government to take action on this. You know, it, and the, the government said before the last election 
in 2019, Minister Goodell at the time, the public safety minister, said that the government was going to make a decision on Huawei before the 2019 general election. They then flip-flopped and said that they would make a decision after the election. Well, it's now been more than a year after that 2019 federal election and still no decision. And this is a government that, quite frankly, doesn't know what it's doing on its China policy. Uh, the, and new surveys out very recently, uh, the vast majority, it was over 80% of Canadians now have a negative view of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, And I remember watching Hockey Night in Canada and seeing the giant Huawei logo up there behind them, and you're just thinking, what's going on here? Is this resonating with uh, politicians? Is this resonating with this government that Canadians don't want this? Well, I, the Conservative Party has long called for the government to take a stronger stand on China. I think the government is now playing catch up to our position. But what you said is also true, that Canadian public opinion has swung massively the other way against China because of the way it is threatening our interests. It's threatened Canadian citizens. It's threatened, threatening Canadian companies. It's threatening our values. But that's not just true here in Canada. There's lots of polling data now that shows that Uh, China is increasingly viewed in a negative light by people in most democracies in Europe, in the United States, south of the border, and in other democracies around the world. And it's because of their increasingly aggressive position and their undermining and threatening of the the citizens of those countries and, and their values. And so I'm not surprised that public opinion has shifted. I think it's clear that China's approach to these files isn't working. And my hope is that at some point they they wake up, they realize that it's not working, it's not in their long-term interests, and they take a different approach to these issues. How big or bad a problem is it where Chinese Canadians who are loyal to this country, just like many immigrants are, are being harassed by members of the Chinese Communist Party who have come over here? It's a huge problem. China has these has an entire department of the Chinese Communist Party called the United Workers, uh, United uh, Workers Front Department that works to undermine and influence uh, people across the world. And China, through its agents and foreign operations here in Canada, is threatening Canadians, particularly Canadians of Chinese origin. Uh, there have been many documented threats made by these agents operating on our soil against Canadian citizens. They're also spying on Canadians and spying on Canadian companies. So it's a huge problem. So what we're calling on the government to do, in addition to making a decision on Huawei, is to come forward with a robust plan to defend our sovereignty on our own soil and to shut down these operations here in Canada. Michael Chong has been with us, Conservative Shadow Minister on Foreign Affairs. Aaron O'Toole on with Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block on Global this weekend, talking about how the federal government needs to take a harder stance on China and particularly Huawei technologies. Michael, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. Let's bring in Gordon Holder, uh, Holden, rather, Director of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. He is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Staying healthy. Thank you. Uh, once before we get into this uh, trade deal, uh, your thoughts on what Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, had to say this weekend that uh, Canada needs to take a harder stance, not only on China, but specifically Huawei technologies and make that call. Well, that decision's pending. And uh, uh, quite frankly, 
it might bring clarity for it would bring clarity for some of the telecoms companies who are waiting to make investment decisions. Huawei equipment tends to be good quality, lower price, so some of them are sort of perhaps waiting, are waiting to know what the government's view is. Once that's clarified, uh, they will have to go forward with the alternatives, like Nokia or or uh, Ericsson. And uh, again, I think the government's been. Perhaps one of the considerations have been not to make it more difficult vis-a-vis the two Michaels, but um, the, can, the decision can't be put off indefinitely, that's for sure. Uh, is that something we could hear in 30 days? We've certainly seen the Prime Minister take a different stance on China, a much tougher stance in the last couple of weeks. Do you think this is far behind? Well, I think that uh, I think 30 days, 60 days, um, this is a decision that the Washington's been pressing us to do. In the back of my mind, I was wondering, could they be waiting to get credit with the right president? In other words, uh, do you want this, given Washington is pushing, I think it'll be a bipartisan issue for both the Democrats and Republicans. Perhaps the idea was, let's make this call, which the Americans are wishing us to do, with the president that's going to be in office where you're going to get the credit. So perhaps there might be an idea... You wait until January 20th. But that's only surmise on my part. I don't know. Uh, China and 14 other nations have signed a new trade pact. What does this mean for Canada? What does this mean for the rest of the world? Well, it means a lot for the rest of the world. This is the world's largest trade pact. It's not quite as robust as TPP in terms of its provisions, not quite as high quality as the trade policy experts would say. But this is a third of the world's population, a third almost of the world's economic output, uh, it's a big deal, and it brings in most all of East Asia and most all of Southeast Asia, as well as Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it will lower tariffs. It's really a little bit, I suppose, a, a cementing of the emergence of Asia as the dominant economic force. That's not, I don't want to exaggerate, you still have North America, you still have Europe, but it is Asia that's rising the fastest at this time. We certainly know uh, what has happened with China's stance and how it has changed uh, and become more aggressive over the last uh, couple of decades. Hong Kong, another example of that. Is this good for democracy? Well, I think if you put it that narrowly, is it good for the global economy? The answer would be yes. Is it good for democracy? Not necessarily. It's not a political agreement. It's an economic agreement. But it does cement or strengthen China's hand uh, in Asia, which is two-thirds of the world's population. So, yes, it is. A, it will bring a, accelerate a more powerful China and accelerate, in my opinion, along with COVID, the time when the Chinese economy will exceed the size of the U.S. economy. And the U.S. has pulled back from TPP. That was supposed to be designed as America's economic response to bring uh, an American pole, a North American pole, into play in Asia. U.S. pulled back from that. That was President Trump's decision. Canada went forward. But I, and it's possible that the U.S. may re-enter TPP, and that would then be a rival to RCEP, as it's called. So what would be the reaction to uh, from Europe and North America, considering this deal? Well, I think it's going to be a wake-up call, I think, for the rest of the world's economy as they see this growth taking place, in particular China now, out of uh, having solved their, at least temporarily, their COVID problem. Um, for Europe, they have pretty strong economic ties with China, but volume counts for a lot. And uh, as Chinese economy grows, 
It has its own supply chains it's developed, which are different than those going into Europe and those of North America. Um, very often people talk about North American and Chinese supply chains, but often these supply chains run right out of China into the rest of Asia. Um, for most of those members, China is their number one trading partner, and that includes both um, that includes both um, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, and most of those other countries. India decided to stay out, but uh, many of those countries are democratic, and it just you end up with a stronger Chinese hand across the board. Uh, that was my next point. Was obviously when you get democratic countries like South Korea and Japan in there, um, is it is it is it dangerous for those countries? Do they put themselves in a position similar to Canada, where they could be bullied? Well, that is the that is the risk. And for countries like Australia, for example, it already has a really challenging relationship um, with um, uh, with. Um, uh, between the two, between Canberra and with uh, Australia, this may put more pressure upon them. They've already got uh, 35% of their exports going to China. We've got 5 already going to China. So they're actually in a much more vulnerable position vis-a-vis China. On the other hand, that Chinese economy is growing smartly. The only big economy is going to grow this year. So that um, they're not about to step away from dealing with China. But China's hand is a stronger one than it was five years ago, and it may well be a stronger hand five years from now, including with major democracies. What about now with Biden uh, heading to the White House? Uh, will the allies now become more united? It seems for the last four years there hasn't been a united front on uh, on the side of democracy. Well, it's going to be interesting with Biden. Uh, uh, President Trump was blue hot and cold on China, started off very very warm and friendly, particularly Xi Jinping, talked about him as a good friend, then ended up the last year or so in a much tougher stance vis-a-vis, uh, vis-a-vis um, uh, China. Uh, Biden, it's, it's really it is difficult to tell. The people who are likely to be his key secretaries of defense and foreign affairs are on the record as having being very wary of, of China, and that is the consensus amongst the bureaucracy in, in Washington. On the other hand, it's been my experience that when there's been a big international crisis, um, often the U.S. has had to look to China to find a solution. So I would predict that things will not change much in the first few months, but there may be some pressure, partly from U.S. business, and partly from, heaven knows, a problem in the Middle East or in North Korea or whatever, but the U.S. needs Chinese cooperation and they have to make some compromises. We will see. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science at the University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Same to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, looking for some good news. Let's get off this planet and head up into space. History made over the weekend. SpaceX and NASA teaming up and sent four astronauts to the International Space Station, which marks the first full-fledged mission that sent a crew aboard a privately owned spacecraft. Also the first time the Americans have flown up there uh, since the uh, space shuttle days, uh, up and down and back and forth, uh, accommodated by a Russian rocket, Russian Soyuz rocket, up until this point. So uh, big news and a giant step for NASA and, uh, and I guess, uh, commercial space travel eventually. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, Professor of Astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, doing very well indeed, Scott. 
You know, this one, this one, Paul, felt almost like an old Apollo launch. You know, it was interesting because this was all starting, and, and we were, happened to be watching TV at the time, and the kids were all sitting around, and my son, Kurt, goes, oh, we got to watch this, and, you know, watch the last few minutes of the countdown and, and so on and so forth. And, and it certainly brings back a time to those, uh, brings back uh, uh, thoughts to that time when, when America was in the space race. How big a deal is this? Well, you, you, you're right. Uh, you know, when you look at the, the Falcon 9 and the Dragon, while it's substantially smaller than the Saturn V, the architecture is very similar. I mean, the capsule looks very, very similar. It's a little more roomy, however, than the Apollo capsule uh, along those lines. But it, it is a big deal. I mean, you know, Bob and Doug flew the demo flight last May uh, and, you know, paved the way for what happened yesterday, uh, Sunday evening. But to have four people flying, uh, on a full-fledged, you know, crew rotation to the International Space Station. You know, it hasn't happened since the last flight of Atlantis in 2011. So it is a big deal for NASA, but it's also a huge deal, I think, for, you know, commercial space endeavors. SpaceX is leading the way to be able to take you and me one of these days, maybe next year, not for you and me, uh, for people into Earth orbit. That, to me, is a big, big step forward as far as, you know, human exploitation uh, of low Earth orbit. And as we have talked about in the past, what I thought was astounding because I'm, I'm we're watching this thing and and you know I'm I'm trying to explain to my son what's going on and you know when the when the rocket the the booster rocket breaks away and such, and then the fact that this thing goes back down and lands on a platform is just absolutely amazing uh, to me. It's just it's amazing how far this technology has come. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, you, you contrast that back with the Saturn V, you know, and, you know, you, you launched that and you threw everything away except the top three meters. <laughs> They're about absolutely everything disintegrated. Whereas, you know, SpaceX has built its reputation on reusability. The Falcon 9, as you just said, comes back and lands out on a drone ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And they do that now ever so routinely. I, I never tire of it. I, I, I watch that every bit as much as the actual you know, second stage taking the payload into orbit. So it was a real double header yesterday in that regard. It really does look like an old Twilight Zone episode to see that happen. It just looks so bizarre for those of us that remember what it was like uh, initially. Another thing I want to talk about, and, and I'm, I'm sure this is less scientific, but certainly from a layman's point of view, is the spacesuit. Does the spacesuit have any purpose? Uh, it, it seemed like, you know, with the boots and stuff, they were going out looking for clams. So c- <laughs> can you explain the significance and if it, what value it holds? It is a precious suit, so uh, it does have functionality. But unlike the Apollo suits of the past, and that includes the, the space shuttle, these ones do look a lot sharper. I mean, you know, SpaceX did invest some time and energy into making them look good. And they do. And, you know, let's face it, if you and I go out and we're wearing a nice suit or what have you, it really sort of spruces up the moment, makes you feel better. And I, I think, in a way, they're playing a little bit of psychology here, playing to the masses, having these four astronauts actually look the part, look futuristic. It reminds me a little bit of the 2001 movie, to be perfectly mm. honest. But they mm. are also functional. Uh, so it's not just straight glamour here. But they've, they've put together functionality with, shall I say, fashion. <laughs> We remember watching older astronauts walk out and then they're, they're in the great big giant suit and they're carrying the suitcase thing with the hose in it beside them and such. Obviously, these new ones must be a lot more comfortable than the old ones. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And it also tells you about you know, how far the capsule has come in terms of its environmental control. Yeah, everything about the, the Dragon is a huge update on not just the space shuttle, but uh, sorry, not just the Apollo, but also the space shuttle. You, you come forward in time and uh, hopefully we can continue to make these improvements. And as I said, make it even easier for you and I, for the spacefaring space tourists, uh, to be able to jump in a, a, a dragon and go into Earth orbit. They don't pull much more than 3Gs uh, on their ascent, and that's also a really good thing as far as you know, older people going into orbit is concerned. Talk about also how this new craft is equipped in case something goes wrong. I remember in, in what we were listening to yesterday, they were talking about how when there was a catastrophe aboard the Challenger, there's there's not much chance of survival, whereas this is designed differently in some way to actually come apart. How Can you explain or add some clarity there? Sure, yeah. And in fact, it's got a lot more redundancy, again, harking back to the Apollo era. They had a little escape tower back in the Saturn V days, and that would pull the capsule free only to a certain height. And after that, you are stuck. And as you point out, the shuttle uh, disaster is bad news. What the Dragon capsule has is literally a great deal of onboard redundancy. And so it can jettison itself from the rest of the rocket at any point during the ascent. So not just during the first stage ascent, but during the second stage ascent. And of course, it's designed to be able to re-enter of its own accord. It has what they call Draco engines on board. And so it has the ability to pull itself free at a really phenomenal acceleration. I mean, that, that would be a huge, huge acceleration, which you know, the people would be subjected to if they needed to use it to get away from you know, some sort of devastation of the first and the second stage. But they pull themselves free very, very quickly. But then they have the maneuverable, the maneuvering capability to uh, re-enter, to control their descent. I mean, they eventually splash down a la Apollo with big parachutes. But the Draco engines on board the Dragon spacecraft, the capsule itself, give them a great deal of confidence to be able to survive almost any emergency situation. So it's, it's a big change in the architecture. I remember, too, with watching the coverage yesterday, they were saying once uh, the module breaks away from, uh, and excuse my terminology if it's not correct, I'm sure it's not, uh, breaks away from the rocket, the booster rocket that sends it up, that that rocket continues to uh, ascend for a certain period of time before it actually starts to come back down again. Well, this is good old Newton's second law. There you go. (laughs) You just keep, sorry, first law, excuse me, first law, keep on going. Uh, you know, the vehicle, when the first and second stage separate, is doing, oh, give or take a bit, three to 4,000 kilometers an hour. So it, it's really moving along. And just because you separate doesn't mean all of a sudden that first stage stops. Uh, it slows down courtesy of gravity and the thin atmosphere and so on. And it does continue to coast upwards, albeit at a, at a decreasing speed, allowing the second stage to course rocket away. So there's, there's no chance of a collision or anything. But you're right. The first stage continues to coast up. And this, of course, is what um, you know, Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic are relying on. They've got a vehicle that has got a rocket up into orbit. They turn off the rocket and then they coast up to what they call this apogee, giving you and I the feeling of weightlessness for Mm. several minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, before gravity has its way with the vehicle and pulls it back down. But uh, uh, Virgin Galactic, as well as SpaceX's first stage, both have the ability to land safely. And, And as I say, that's a huge change from the 60s and the 70s the space shuttle was reusable in that regard as well. 
So what does this mean for SpaceX and Elon Musk having this successful mission? I'm sure despite the fact that he's got a case of COVID, he's celebrating furiously at this point mm. in time, and, and so we should. I mean, SpaceX have done a wonderful job, as far as I'm concerned, taking on the challenge of being you know, a commercial partner for NASA. They've made no secret of the fact that they want to be able to take people like you and me into Earth orbit for space tourism starting as early as next year. This vehicle has now been crew rated. It's safe for humans as far as NASA is concerned. And uh, you know, they will start taking people up to the International Space Station just into low Earth orbit and you know, spin around the planet for a day or two. It is a roomy capsule. And so you know, three or four people can spend you know, moder- moder- moderately a really nice time in it for you know, a few days at a time. SpaceX wants to really push the uh, aspect of space tourism. And there are other groups out there who are wanting to try and build space hotels. Well, they've now got a partner in SpaceX. They've got a hotel which can be a destination. And SpaceX has the ability to take people up at the drop of a hat. Is this now the new vehicle that takes Americans up to the, uh, to the International Space Station? Where does this leave the Russian program? Uh, scrapped for cash, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I don't think NASA has got more than about one, maybe two seats, uh, still reserved on the Soyuz vehicle. And that was, you know, a safety precaution more than anything else in case the timelines for, uh, the Dragon got pushed. Uh, remember as well, we've got a Starliner from Boeing, which is going to try again, uh, to make its debut flight now in 2021. Uh, also part of this commercial program that NASA started all the way back in 2008. But yeah, the Soyuz is now going to uh, just ferry its own Russian cosmonauts into orbit. They too will get back into the space tourism business. So you're going to continue to see Soyuz play an important part and a role in the International Space Station. But the U.S. NASA will now rely on their own vehicles, not on Soyuz, to go up and back very much as we did during the era of the space shuttle. Is America still the world leader here? Oh, that's a politically charged question. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think you'd have to say that their overall uh, success in the space environment, both with human-rated vehicles as well as their uh, you know, autonomous you know, spacecraft that go off to Mars and so on, that it still is number one. Uh, you know, the Russians have not been particularly successful with their automated probes out to the planets. They've certainly been very successful in taking people in and out of Earth orbit very, very safely. I mean, if you look at the safety record of the Soyuz, it's head and shoulders, unfortunately, above the space shuttle and, and the U.S. vehicle. Um, but it, it is not as redundant or as robust as what we are now seeing from the Dragon. But, um, yeah, I, I think you'd have to say NASA is still number one. But gosh, you know, the, the, the Russians do have good technology as far as the human-rated vehicles is concerned. And let's not forget the Chinese. They've done some pretty remarkable things, particularly on the moon over the last three or four years. Their human program, human-rated program, is still, shall we say, uh, a little bit behind NASA. But gosh, when you look at what they've done on the moon and they've got a probe en route to Mars uh, along with NASA, don't count them out. They've got some pretty good stuff themselves. So what's next for SpaceX and NASA as far as joint ventures? Well, once we dock tonight at the International Space Station, that will begin a six-month crew rotation for the four people on Resilience. 
this will be the first time we'll have seven people on board the International Space Station for a prolonged period of time. So that's good for research. Uh, having an extra astronaut on board simply means more research is going to be accomplished. We're going to grow space radishes there <laughs> over the next six months. That's perhaps one of the cute things that they're taking up with them, not to mention checking out the new toilet. Uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of practical things that will happen over the next six months. But, um, you know, I think the, the best thing to look forward to is making this routine that, uh, you know, SpaceX will start this crew rotation now every six months in a routine fashion with NASA. Uh, and as I said, space tourism is on SpaceX's agenda. So independent of NASA, you're going to see more action from SpaceX. You know, if you're going to have tourists, you got to have a functioning toilet. So well, tell me about the – that's even going to make it worse. Uh, so what are the improvements there, if I may ask? Oh, I didn't look up the engineering specs, mate. I'm sorry. Uh, but there is improvements. There are improvements. I mean, it's strange that it might sound, but that's not strange. It's one of the biggest challenges to be able to put functioning toilets on board the space station. It's a very unusual environment, as you can well imagine. It's got to all work in zero gravity. You want the environment of the space station not to reflect the environment of the toilets. So you've got to capture a lot of this stuff and keep everybody nice and safe. Uh, so there have been many, many modifications to the waste repository system uh, on board ISS over the last 20 years, and, and the latest one has gone up this time. There you go. So there's like a little Johnny on the spot on the thing on the way up there. there you go. That too. <laughs> I've got the new toilet. Yeah. Uh, Paul Delaney's been with us, uh, professor of astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, you know, you'd be thinking about that. The space, you know, the the the, the rockets coming up. They're going to make a delivery to the new space station. They're bringing some food. They're bringing some experiments, and but most importantly, they're bringing the new toity. Yay! The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.